Oh, hello there, ladies and gents. Welcome back once again to Doom Radio, also known as Tango TV, the only Doom podcast with two names. Wow. What a feature. Won't find that anywhere else. Uh, <laughs> so we have some new uh, kit inbound to the studio. The Tango TV stu- My bedroom. Let's, let's just call it that. That's what it is. I'm not going to glorify it by calling it something it doesn't deserve. Um, we have a pop filter inbound and uh, some sound absorption padding. Something akin to that, anyway. You feel like I should know the details because I've made the bloody purchase already. Um, and a cardioid mic. The most important item. So, uh, also, we'll be patching up the acoustics in this place. Point being that in about two to three interviews' time, when all this stuff arrives and is installed, you should be hearing a pretty big upswing in the quality of sound, so look forward to that. Uh, but not as much as you should be looking forward to today's episode. Ha <laughs> ha! Yeah, how about that for a segue, eh? Not too shabby. Uh, it's not the interview with Obsidian, unfortunately. That one will still be going ahead, but probably next week, or the week after. Um, Linguisa has managed to procure, about two weeks ago, uh, an interview with two very fine guests, being as he is the person with his finger on the pulse of the Twitter sphere, anything Doom-related that passes through that medium, he's going to know about it. Um, so it's no big surprise that he managed to show that initiative and, and get these two folks in. He sent out for a Patrick Lemieux, who is a media artist and game designer. You'll hear him talk a little bit about himself, uh, along with Amber Graham, who is a computer science major, taking part in a Doom-related course that Patrick was running um, I found this to be an extremely interesting discussion, and frankly, I'd be surprised if there's anyone in the community who isn't at least a little bit interested about an outside perspective on the game, a contemporary perspective, being as we are now in 2017, and there are so many of us that would have started playing the game in the mid to late 90s or the early 2000s. So, uh, to understand, to get a sort of critical analysis of, of its impact on culture, and some of the things that we may not have noticed... Um, being in this bubble that we are. It's a fascinating perspective. Um, some of the things that came out of it, the mods that Amber created, for example, um, the Mario-related study that Patrick was involved in just prior to this. If you're also familiar with Jazz Mickle's Doom is an Art Scene video, I'll provide a link to that in the description. Um, that was used as a cold opening, as Patrick describes, uh, for his course. So that's mandatory viewing as well. Thank you very much for to these two guests and to Linguisa for, for sharing the initiative to get this underway, because it's, I mean, it <laughs> frankly embarrasses my skills, doesn't it? <laughs> it's also a better interviewer than I am. So that shits me sideways, that does. Bloody makes me furious. Anyway, I'm pissed now. I'm going to have to get off. Uh, here we are with um, Patrick Lemieux and Amber Graham. So I'm Patrick Lemieux. I'm a media artist and game designer. Um, I'm the author of a book called Metagaming with Stephanie Bullock, um, and also an assistant professor here at UC Davis, where we're kind of beaming in from today. Um, and yeah, one of the things that uh, that book is about is about the games that people play in, on, around, and through other games. So I'm really interested in how games become a kind of platform for broader cultural making or, or different types of discussions. And uh, this class kind of comes out of that uh, question of like, what do games do beside being games? Um, what can people do when they try and make another game with a game? And Doom just so happens to like have a ton of metagames around it, whether it be like speedrunning or machinima or making levels or making assets for it. Amber, and how about you? All right, so um, my name is Amber Graham. Uh, I am a third-year computer science major at UC Davis. Um, I started kind of being uh, interested in games um, almost a year ago uh, when I first took Patrick's uh, Unity course. So it was like introduction to um, like experimental game design. Um, and that was a really fun course. And so towards the end of that, he mentioned he would be um, teaching a Doom class. And I thought that sounded really cool. <laughs> <laughs> like studying, a, you know, such a classic game uh, for school sounded really awesome. <laughs> so um, signed up for that. Didn't really have much uh, Doom experience going into it. Um, but yeah, I was left, you know, feeling really impressed with um, <laughs> how 
you know, broad the Doom community kind of is and um, all the crazy things that it's used for. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, so Amber, like, this is a good thing to go into is like, what is your experience of Doom like before this class? Uh, and I can answer this question too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I had completely never played the game before. I mean, I had heard of it, this sort of classic game that everyone played in the 90s and is still, you know, a super classic game. Um, I knew that there was a really large modding community surrounding it. Um, but other than that, I had no idea <laughs> like how big the bonding community still is today and also just um, how amazing mods can be. I, I thought, you know, maybe it was just some like different levels that, you know, use all the same graphics and things from the original Doom, but um, obviously that isn't the case. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. <laughs> So it's had you, really like, I, I asked this, like, very early on in the class of, like, who had seen a screenshot of Doom? Like, because nobody, we asked, like, at the first day, like, who's played Doom? And nobody raised their hands. It was a class of, like, nine people, I think. Really? These are people who are kind of 20, early 20-ish, I'm guessing? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so nobody had played it. And then I was like, has anybody even seen like a screenshot of this game. Were any of the students in the class actually born before the game came out? No. Uh, probably not, no. Oh, yeah, because it's, you know, 24 odd years at this point. Yeah, everybody in the class was basically in their 20s, I think. Patrick, if we go back to you, I'm just curious about your personal history and if you, I'm assuming you've known about it for a long time, but I'm curious if you played it in the 90s or if, and if you had kind of kept up with it or if it was new coming back to you or what have you. <laughs> no, so so I'm actually in some ways uh, similar to Amber in this regard. Like I had I had known about Doom since '93. I explicitly remember seeing it on what I remember as like a ThinkPad laptop from like '93 um, at like a friend's house. But uh, my family, like growing up, we had a lot of console games. So we had like a Nintendo and we had a PC starting in 92, but we played stuff like Warcraft 2, we played a lot, but uh, but Doom we never had. And, and actually we never really, my, I have two brothers who are younger than me. We never really played a lot of first person shooters. So we're very, uh, uh, the three of us are like not super great at them. Um, but uh, so I'd known about Doom for a long time, but I'd never really had an opportunity to kind of dive into it. And in fact, I've been really interested um, since finishing the book to learn a little bit more about the history of first-person shooters. And specifically, I wanted to start with like Wolfenstein and Doom. And so this class was like an excuse or a kind of opportunity uh, to force myself to like play these games really intensely and learn a lot about them. And this is something I do in a lot of my classes, for better or for worse, is like choose to teach about something I am not an expert in. Um, which forces kind of the class to be, I think, really um, like spontaneous and experimental and kind of ad hoc uh, and, and be very practical in terms of problem solving with emulation or with different technologies. But at the same time, the, the downside of that is like sometimes I just like don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask because uh, Amber mentioned a Unity course that you taught before. Have you ever taught a course that was laser focused on one specific game or something like that before? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so this is a course that Amber didn't take, but I taught a class called um, Clipping, Ripping, Hacking, Burning in uh, 20, early 2016, I think. And it was a NES development class focused specifically on Super Mario Brothers. And so for that class, we are reading uh, Nathan Altice's uh, platform study of the NES called I Am Error. And then we were learning how to um, uh, like speedrun Mario and uh, do ROM hacks of Mario and make alternative controllers of Mario and, and other things like that. And, and so that's kind of the inspiration for this class is because like um, I'm writing another book right now about Mario as a medium for making uh, art. Um, and kind of thinking about from 2004 to 2014, all the stuff people have done with Super Mario Brothers. And I was trying to figure out like, oh, if it's not Mario Brothers, like what would be a, another good piece of software to kind of like dive into that would allow people to see a range of different types of approaches to the same object um, and would give us some insight into some 
like older uh, piece of entertainment media, like from the 80s or 90s. And Doom like fit that probably better than Mario Brothers, actually, because the production context of that game and uh, is really hard to know. Nintendo is really secretive. So David Sheff has this book um, that's a pretty good like journalistic effort in uh, like tracking what Nintendo does. And Nathan Altice has this book that's a good kind of introduction into the technologies. But Doom was a lot easier to find like cultural work um, around its production as well as around the way that people played with it, like in its original moment in like 93, 94, and 95. I wanted to specifically ask about, okay, so the fact that you were never involved in Doom in any way and you were coming to it in 2017, basically like uh, basically with a clean slate, like you didn't have any preconceptions, probably had preconceptions, but not like specific things about the game that you knew or didn't know. It's funny because I've been playing Doom for so long that like when I was in that position, it was literally like 1995 and the internet was obviously completely different. And the way that you learned things and kind of got involved was completely different. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear what it was like in 2017 to, to basically start from scratch and kind of learn how to edit Doom and learn all these kind of strange quirks and community things about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I also have questions about what it was like in the 90s, but maybe we'll get to that <laughs> later. But maybe Amber, what, what was your experience of like trying to play the game and and edit it and things like that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess for me, like specifically, it was kind of interesting coming from um, like the Unity class and then going to Doom, kind of moving backwards in time a little bit as far as, you know, uh, when these kind of tools were sort of developed and um, used and stuff. But um, yeah, so it was, it was actually, I, I remember the first time I opened up Blade and was just trying to like make a map <laughs> and it was like oh my gosh like I can't get these lines con- to connect or I can't run this and things like that so it was, it was yeah it was it was kind of frustrating at first for me <laughs> uh, but yeah once you get past it it's, it's it's a lot of fun yeah I think uh, Amber if you pass me one of those big books uh, we have a couple of books in here along with like his graphics programming black book We've got Tricks of the Doom Gurus, uh, <laughs> which is a book. It has like this blue demon with like saliva dripping out of its mouth on the cover. And we also have 3D Game Alchemy. But these are like 2,000 page books published in like 1994 and 95. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned those two particular books and also the graphics programming black book because I literally have all three of those books in my bookshelf next to me like right now. <laughs> Yeah, so so one of the things that I thought when I like bought these books, because you know these are basically like huge books that I imagine I don't know where you got yours, Andrew. I got I got mine on eBay for like a dollar each. Not not the graphics programming black book because that's kind of like a collector's item or something. But uh, I imagine that these were in like popular stores, like a a popular bookseller. The copies I have, I bought in the past couple of years off of eBay or, or uh, Amazon or whatever. But I have distinct memories in like 95 of going to the local Barnes and Noble or whatever the big bookstore was. And just like sitting in the game aisle with a copy of like tricks of the doom gurus. Because, because, <laughs> because it was like a real book that you could just go to the bookstore and buy. Cause doom was big enough for that. You know, so like how Minecraft is now where there's a million books for that doom was sort of like that back in the day yeah and so i like i got these books and i was looking at them um and it struck me that like you know doom is like unity doom in the 90s is like unity today in some ways like um there's no like network or like uh uh, forums or something but you could get these books that are kind of these fat uh manuals of how to do specific things with the cd-roms that come with them that have some like level editors and things like that and so uh, one of the approaches that we took in the class was to kind of like use contemporary tools like Slade and engage with those communities. So we were watching a lot of tutorials by like JP LeBreton or uh, looking at Evie has a really good um, text-based uh, tutorial on Slade. Um, and I think both JP and Evie have like contributed to Slade's development in some ways. Um, so when I first started learning how to like make maps and stuff, I was doing that because we also needed a cross-platform solution. So that's one of the reasons that we didn't use Doom Builder was because we were running both Macs and PCs in the class. Um, but it struck me that we always wanted to keep in mind like this to like tricks of the Doom gurus. And 
this idea that like maybe some of the things about the way that Slade works um, or some of the things about the way that Doom Builder works, some of the counterintuitive things are part of what it means to like interface with this particular game. And in, in these classes, especially on like Mario or Doom, like the point isn't to make like the game of your dreams or, or to have like this kind of formal abstract idea of a game that you want to make. It's to like um, deal with like the, the, the difficulty or like the, um, the friction of a specific piece of software or hardware and incorporate that friction into your creative process. And so this is another reason I really like doing these modding classes is because it gives us some constraints to work with. Um, and so, yeah, approaching it in 2017 was like this weird um, anachronistic process of like looking at what people are writing today, but then comparing it with this like longer history. And so I was also reading like text files and looking at the types of projects people made at different times, especially some of the first um, wads that came out in the in the nineties. We also have a copy of D Zone here, which I does it. Wait, is it the uh, is it the one that actually has photos from the game, or is it the one that has the three D renders that only vaguely re- resemble an actual game? It's the one with photos, I think, uh, and it says like over nine hundred levels. <laughs> yeah, well, that was. I mean, there was actually there was actually a court case about the D Zone. Actually, the court case was about a Duke three D similar one that had uh, screenshots and the court basically said that using the screenshots was copyright violation. And so they started basically making these 3d renders that kind of looked like a video game, but were like way too flashy. And then just kind of put that on the cover instead. So you would buy a D zone thing, but the cover was like some like lens flares and 3d like architecture in front of you, even though none of that actually existed. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. This, this is also one of the things that we were like curious about with this class was like, Doom, you know, is in some of the earliest like Senate committee hearings and court cases, like civil suits about video games and violence. And so we were kind of also interested in that, but I hadn't heard this like D zone uh, litigation. <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> write that down. Uh, well, it was. Later. I mean, it's. Uh, it was. I mean, it wasn't a huge deal. It was just something interesting that I heard about at some point. That uh, the old D zone screen fake screenshots have kind of been a community in joke for years. People. Like saying that someone should make a mod that attempts to actually resemble these fake screenshots that are on later boxes of these home software. Just, just because it's something that was just kind of like, if you were young at the time, it was just, and you were interested in Doom, it was just something that like you saw and just kind of permeated your brain and you remember it later. So anyway, um, I'd like to get into the um, meat of the actual class at this point. So um, I guess I guess we should start at the beginning with introducing the uh, students to setting up and playing Doom and how that worked. Yeah, so one of the things that we did right at the start, well, I learned this from the Mario class, which I think didn't have as smooth like a like an introduction, but I wanted to basically break the class up into like kind of three broad sections. Uh, some kind of section about playing the game. So rather than jumping in and making stuff like we did with the Mario class, I wanted to like get a better um, kind of understanding of how you would approach the game as a player. And then the second part was kind of like the, the software. So doing like level design and asset development. And then the third part was hardware. So like thinking more about code and interface and things like that. And so I think the first day what we did is we like uh, just like started out cold with Jazz Mickle and um, that amazing open letter to uh, John Romero and kind of used that as a way to think about like, okay, we're diving into a piece of software that has like lots of different outputs and like lots of different inputs. And, um, but before we're going to look at ROM hacks and speedruns and things like that, we're just going to try and play it. Um, so this was the first time that anybody had like sat down and played it. And so the first kind of week was just like, let's just try and level by level get through uh, knee deep in the dead. Like this seems like a pretty doable amount of time. And then everybody was supposed to make like a diary of like what they noticed about the levels and the reason for that is just like to be aware of what you're doing when you're playing like not to get lost in um not not to get lost in the hyper real immersivity (laughs) of doom but to always be aware that like the emulator you're using matters and like your setup on your machine matters and things like that um amber how did you deal with like the first 
like just playing it. Yeah, I like I like Amber. I'd like to hear yeah, what your initial impressions were on actually having to play this <laughs> game for the first time in 2017. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I was using Chocolate Doom, um, and I remember thinking that it was very strange that I had to download a piece of software in order to play Doom. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm used to just downloading it off of Steam, and it's like, you know, oh it's yeah, good to the, go. the Steam, the Steam uh, package of Doom and the Doom games has been a sore spot for a, a decade at this point. Because <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if either of you have tried playing it on Steam, but it's but basically it's just because there's DOSBox, which is kind of a it's a DOS an emulated DOS environment, yeah, and, and so when you launch Doom on Steam, it literally just launches a DOSBox window with the original executable playing, and which is fine-ish, but it's like far from the best thing they could have done. <laughs> yeah, so basically anyone who wants to play Doom nowadays, any, you know, more than just playing in DOSBox has to go through this whole rigmarole, and there's like nothing we can do about it, because we can't like make id software update their package. So, uh, anyway, so yeah, you can go on. Yeah. yeah, were you playing like keyboard only when you first played it? I think, okay, because we, we played it first in class, and we played it in class, I think, with the mouse. So I guess technically the first time I played it with the mouse. And then once I played it at home, I think I did it keyboard only. I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I changed maybe a couple of the controls. But for the most part, yeah, it was strange having my right hand on the arrow keys and shooting with control was like very awkward for me at first. <laughs> right. Yeah, and there's like... I don't think straight is mapped. No, it so wasn't. So I had to change that. <laughs> yeah, the default is that strafe is like you have to hold down the alt key and then you can strafe back and forth with the yeah. arrow keys. And yeah, and it's uh, it's funny you say you started playing with the mouse originally because there is kind of a there's a preconception that uh, goes around that Doom wasn't designed with the mouse in mind, which I mean, isn't true. Like there like, there are. There's actually a, a video, which I think you guys watched in the class from like a month before it was released. It was like a, a visit to id Software or something. Yeah. Yeah. And in that video, you can actually see John Romero like using a mouse as he plays the game. So it's like, well, okay. Obviously, it existed at the time. <laughs> but uh, Amber, I guess going more into the actual experience of playing it, like what did you think of the game as you played it for the mm-hmm. first time? Yeah. So. As far as like my, I, I definitely wasn't, it wasn't expecting it to be this sort of like level. It sounds really weird because it's, you would think that I would know more about this game, but I, I wasn't expecting it to be like this sort of level to level sort of progression. And I think it was also interesting to me too. It was uh, like trying to navigate these maps and things like that, where a huge part of the game, just being able to like understand the space, which was also, yeah, there's that element of like a labyrinth or a maze that shows yeah. up like really early on where the mm-hmm. levels seem much bigger than you think they are. And then the other thing that surprised me or took me by surprise, and I don't think that hit home for me until the the last level of Knee Deep in the Dead, is that the the kind of like arcade I hesitate to like describe it this way, but like almost like an arcade style combat where you're like bobbing back and forth almost like a, a shmup or something, um, and how good that can feel. I, I know a lot of people have criticisms, I think, of like the, the last level of Knee Deep in the Dead, where it's like the, the pentagram, like the giant uh, a tra- uh, star that you're fighting the two um, barons in. But um, I feel like that was one of the first moments that like I really had a lot of fun with the combat. And like up until that level, I felt like it was more of like a maze um kind of like memorizing or even like drawing little maps i also didn't know how to pull up the map when i first oh, played no. it. so like were you using the map like did you know how to press tab yeah. when you were first playing yeah. okay yeah i think i went through the first episode not pressing oh, no. tab without the auto map yeah i can't even imagine that would have been <laughs> that would have yeah and it's, and it's funny that you mentioned the kind of the arcadey element because i i think in the sil in the syllabus i also saw that you read a, uh, I can't remember. It was by J.P. LeBreton. I think it was called like Seelacanth or something like that. Where it was, it was yeah. him and, ta- and he specifically talks about how the combat is it, when you strip it down. It's very similar to uh, Robotron, which was an old '80s arcade game. Yeah, like almost if you could just play with 
the map screen and nothing else, it would be pretty similar to something like Robotron or like Gauntlet or, or some kind of top-down shooter in that fashion. Though with slightly different control. Right, yeah. And and uh, and I find it interesting, just the thing you said about how E1M8, what turned out to be kind of the the only level in episode one that you like found particularly uh, challenging or interesting in kind of a gameplay way. And I think that's... I don't know if it was like the only level I found challenging or interesting. I just think it like really hit home for me in that moment that like, oh, like a, like a boss that's like a bullet sponge in this particular game. It's just like a lot of fun to like run around in this huge open area and kind of like sink bullet after bullet into these guys. It just started to like make me appreciate like the moving and shooting at the same time. And that makes me, it just makes me think of kind of a, a concept, a preconception that people in the community have nowadays, which is how, you know, when Doom was being developed, like the, uh, the first person shooter genre practically didn't exist. I mean, obviously Wolfenstein 3D did, but it hadn't been developed or like the gameplay hadn't been developed in any meaningful way. And nowadays, most people, tend to think that Doom 1, which is what you guys were playing, is mm-hmm. almost tedious because they, uh, the, like the developers expected people to be so kind of like such novices and, like, and so that the, uh, the combat is pretty rudimentary in the sense that like the enemies either have like a hit scan, which is where they like shoot a bullet, an instant bullet at you, or they have a fireball that just kind of comes at you and you can just strafe it if you know how to strafe. And the combat doesn't really get any more involved in that. And that came later in Doom 2 and then in other first-person shooters as well. And mm-hmm. so I just find it interesting that, like, playing it for the first time... Um, so, I mean, obviously you've played other first-person shooters in other games. And so I find it interesting that that kind of rubbed off on you in the sense that it made the combat in Doom 1 more obviously simplistic than it was contemporaneously in like 94 which is not something that i which, you know and i've never had the experience because i originally played it in 1994 so at the time like you know i didn't know how to strafe or things like that yeah there's kind of a purity and you know i'm kind of biased because i've done this mario class before but i think a lot about the relationship between doom and mario in terms of like game design lessons of like setting stuff up kind of like um step by step and guiding a user through like, oh, here's where you get the shotgun for the first time. And now the gameplay changes subtly to this. Whereas in Mario, it's like, here's where you get, uh, you see like a beetle for the first time, or you see a bullet for the first time, or you get this type of power-up for the first time. And so there's something really interesting, like from a game design perspective, and most of the students in the course uh, have made games before and are thinking about game design. So I felt that Doom was also like a good lesson to kind of like slow it down and think really carefully about staging anticipation, um, uh, kind of like uh, timings or, or uh, drama in a level. Um, and yeah, I think in some ways, like this really starts to shine in the later episodes because the, the first episode actually is like the most limited or linear in terms of a lot of, like there's not a lot of puzzles which really start to come out later um, or different types of architecture which come out later. But anyway, I liked treating it as like one uh, kind of thing that we'd have to think about for a week. And also, this was a way to kind of get everybody used to how to emulate it <laughs> and how to like set up the keyboard and things like that before we kind of dove into the rest of the game. So yeah, so after, and so I guess after you guys all got it set up and played it and kept your uh, your notes for playing the first episode, then the next week you uh, had them immediately move into speed running and recording demos for the game? Well, so there was a week in between um, that we don't have to dwell on, but basically it was like, now that you've played through the first game, some of you keyboard only, and maybe it was like harder than you expected, or maybe you learned a lot. Now just like get through every single level, um, but you can use like cheats and uh, you can like use console commands and you can configure it differently. And so we were really inspired by like J.P. LeBreton's concept of game tourism, which is a little bit more like, um, you know, kind of like a, almost like an architectural tour or a city tour where you don't worry too much about the puzzle challenges or combat challenges of a game, but just kind of make your way through the a sequence of architecture. And so that's where students started like clipping and using invincibility and uh, infinite ammo or giving themselves all the keys so they could get through. Which in some ways really changes like your relationship to Doom, but in other ways, like when we're on a schedule and we got to kind of get through three more episodes, I think we played 
all four episodes. Did we? Yeah. So getting through them all was also like a lot if you weren't um, kind of cutting corners. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, then we moved on to speedrunning. Yeah. Well, Amber, just before we move on briefly, Amber, um, I'm just curious if, so you played through all four episodes of the original Doom. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you notice any difference between the first three and the fourth or did it just kind of blow? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it definitely got weirder. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the uh, the map design got stranger. I think there was more things like what was it like the hand level or that, that was oh the in- hand was in episode three, I believe. Yeah. Oh, that okay. was in episode three. Okay. Maybe we didn't play four. Maybe we just did one, two, and three. Well, I mean, it's uh, yeah. Well, I was I was simply asking because episode four was one that was kind of uh, added on a, a few years later to kind of make it oh, because yeah. originally it was three episodes and it was only sold through mail order. We had to literally, you had to literally call up in software and give them your address and give them your credit card number, and then they would, <laughs> and they would mail you the game. And they were making and they were selling tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of games this way. And then, like in ninety five, ninety six, a couple of years later after Doom 2 was out and its software was more of a big name, they said, well, we should actually put Doom 1 out on like store shelves. And to sweeten the deal, they added an episode four, which was made several years later. And so everything is much more, it's much harder. The levels are much more advanced. And so it's, it's interesting to, to see them in the sense that like, it's still the same game, but it's, it was coming from a couple years down the road when everyone had a lot more experience with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think this is the reason that we stuck to yeah. three though the fourth episode was available and also doom 2 is kind of available but we thought about the first three as like a a, a holistic kind of set and yeah a lot of people were <laughs> like impressed uh or i don't know if impressed is the right word maybe mystified by um like the sandy peterson like yeah. hand uh level or like uh, i think like e3m1 uh, a lot of students thought looked like a digestive tract with like a room that looks like a kind of like where the stomach would be and then like the lower thin and stuff. Um, so we're finding all kinds of bodily horror in like the maps of hell. Uh. <laughs> uh, you guys were also reading Masters of Doom at, as you were going through this. Yeah, so we were reading a couple chapters a week along with like a, an external reading and we kind of treated Masters of Doom a little bit like um, we, we understood it to be like a popular book, uh, but we were treating it a little bit like our history book and then we get different kind of theoretical approaches alongside that so in the speedrunning week for example we were reading high performance play by henry lowood which is just like a great um kind of intervention into thinking about machinima starting with doom um but yeah we read through the whole uh masters of doom which i think was really really helpful as like an anchor for the whole course it, it definitely it, i mean it's an excellent book and it remains basically the authoritative work on the history of its software and the development of doom and you know the early 90s early days of the company yeah it's really clear that kushner like had an incredible set of interviews that he was going off and actually like i don't know the details of like where those interviews live right now because it'd be really interesting to find like i wonder if they're at the strong museum or something but it'd be really interesting to read some of kushner's uh interviews with all of these folks um because that's clearly what like the history in the book is based off of like hundreds probably of, of interviews with employees and other people who were um, kind of interfacing with the original Doom. I also really liked how Kushner like different moments of computer history. So one thing that we covered in the class was like like the mainframe era of computing and the, the like mini computer and how Romero showed up at different like uh, college uh, university like laboratories when he was growing up before the he and Carmack got uh, like Apple II's, and uh, Kushner's also really good about like referencing a lot of other kind of computer history books. So like I think there's a little bit on Stephen Levy's book Hackers in there, um, and so we were trying to bring that stuff in. We like went through like follow up on some of Kushner's leads, um, but yeah, I really I really like that. And I think if I ever did the Mario class again, we do the same thing with the Chef book. Um, but we we basically focused on the Altex book in that class. So I think it's good to have like a more accessible kind of like popular history book alongside uh, some of the more kind of technical reading. 
Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always lamented that no one ever made like a TV miniseries out of that book because I think it would have been a really good subject for that sort of thing. Yeah, totally. And moving on, so I guess uh, I mean, we'll skip over the speed running stuff because that's I mean I, I I'm guessing that the uh, the answer is that everyone kind of fumbled their way through it more or less. Oh oh um I I think Patrick was asking what uh, level I sped run. Yeah, and um it was. Uh, E two M one or E two M two, but it's the one with all the crates. That is, that's E two M two, yes. Yeah, so that's the one that I did. Yeah, I I first chose that one because I think we watched someone speed run it, um, in class, um, and they did like a jump over this sort of river of green stuff. So I tried that a million times and could never get it. I was going to say this. Oh, speed running is a, is a black hole that you can fall down basically forever. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's then, what I ended I, up doing. I think, and that like term kind of our um, playful intervention, I guess, where like all of the first three weeks were kind of in the position of what a player would do. Like a player might play through the game kind of straight up. A player might use cheat codes or console commands. And then finally, like players might find, you know, either competitive, different forms of competition that you can do inside the levels. And, I find that like doing a speedrun or, or testing out speedrun is also just a really good game design lesson, um, where you learn a lot about like the intricacies of a given engine. And I think like um, Benjamin Larison, who is another student in the class, did the did the kind of like clipping trick oh, where yeah. you can like wiggle outside of a level because there's a 90 degree angle, um, and it's the only one in the game that you can like flip through that corner. Uh, the, yeah, the, the void glide is a well known. I think it's E2M6, I believe. Yes. Yeah, that's a well known trick that's actually gotten more attention in recent years because people have kind of figured out exactly why it works and so there was kind of an effort to go through kind of all the maps and kind of see if there were any other corners that were like that that you could possibly clip out of as well and i don't think they ever found any where it really worked yeah yeah and then uh i think steven fan and a few people were doing like big jumps where you had to like wait i can't even remember the name for it but where you're holding down like strafe turn and run forward at the same time while moving the mouse a specific yeah, way. Straight, yeah, straight yeah, fifty is what it's called. It's straight fifty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was really fun to see that. Like, oh, you know, folks who like program this game didn't really imagine, um, or maybe they did and couldn't change it, like is the case with bunny hopping uh, in Quake or something. But uh, they didn't imagine like binding all the same buttons so that you could use them all at the same time and that they'd add together in this way. And so I think that these are all just like really interesting lessons both in like, not necessarily what you have to avoid uh, in the games that you make, but just the idea that like games are always bigger than what we think they are. Um, like there's always more. Yeah, I, I would almost, I mean, you, you said something about uh, things you want to av avoid while making a game. I would argue this is almost something that you would want to include while making a game. I mean, in the sense that like, they're, it's like they're, they're quote-unquote like advanced movement techniques that are in the game and they're like, you know, not necessarily easy to do, but they're there for people to master if they want to. And it kind of gives more of a, like a skill ceiling, I guess you could say. Yeah, I'm really interested. I'm really interested in this, like, like how you change a game from like a linear or like single player experience into a platform or like a tool or an instrument for doing a lot of things. And a lot of that comes with like adding nuance. And so in the case of Doom, like there's just tons of nuance, like in terms of the different types of controls you can do, the different types of uh, kind of mods you can make, the different types of controllers that you can like assemble for it. And so, yeah, again, this is like, uh, I think you're right. Like, maybe the lesson isn't these are errors to fix, but um, like interesting they're, they're errors, to, errors to celebrate, I guess is what I would say. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, so, so you mentioned mods you can make with the game. I'd like to move on to the actual, the, the modding that the students did in the class and how that, uh, how that worked out. Yeah, so um, maybe I can just like summarize the next three weeks briefly and then Amber can can tell us a little bit about uh, the way she dealt with these issues. But uh, basically, like the middle section of the class, after we acquainted with the game and had started to read some of the history, um, was it was kind of like time to get our hands dirty and make some stuff. And so we did a week on level design, where they uh, had to use the assets that came with Doom 1. So the enemies, the weapons, and the textures. Um, but they could change the way a level looked. And we followed that by a week on making your own images. 
Um, so specifically, I think just like flats, which are like the floor or ceiling kind of textures, and then the uh, textures that would go on the walls. And then the third week of this middle portion of the class was on uh, sprites and scripting. Um, and I think we were more ambitious in the syllabus. Like we wanted to do some actual engine modification, um, but we ended up just like dealing with the um, kind of file uh, that a lot of um, like limit-free Doom emulators use or source ports use. Yeah, decorate is specific. Well, just for the listener, <laughs> decorate is specifically a a feature that was introduced in a, a port called ZDoom, which has since been discontinued and basically supplanted by another port called GZDoom, which is kind of the 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 main port that that most people looking to play Doom will find GZDoom, download that, and that includes scripting and you know uh, better graphics and all sorts of things along with it. Yeah, and so for the first project, which was just texture changes, that one was everybody had to make it work in Chocolate Doom, and mine so- didn't. <laughs> Did, did your summer? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Most people had to make their in chocolate Doom as a way of just like learning some of the basic protocols of Doom. But then when it came to doing sprites and other things with decorate files, they we all moved to GZ Doom at that time. Um, and so Amber, you made like three mods during those three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what did you end up like doing? Yeah. So for the first project, um, again, it was just kind of learning how to use Slade and just, um, yeah, just learning how to make a map. Um, and so during this first week, um, we also looked at John Romero's um, E1 M8. Uh, and I really liked the sort of jagged lines that he included in that. So I was, I kind of tried to include that in my own level. And um, yeah, and this is the E1 M8 that I think he made in like 2016, yeah. where it was like, Almost like a, he talked about it like a warm-up or something for some other level design he was doing. And he kind of imagined since I think Tom Hall did the original E1 M8. Or was it uh it was Sam Peterson, but it, yeah, but it's it's funny that you it's funny that you mentioned that because uh when when John Romero was making that map, it was early twenty sixteen, I think. And he actually emailed me out of the blue and asked me, "Hey, like, do you want to like play test a new Doom map I'm making?" And I was just like, and I was basically just like, "Hell yes!" And so he sent it to me early. So, so and it was it was very difficult to not tell anyone that I was busy play testing a new John Romero Doom level. So I was and I was yeah. glad to see that it got a lot of attention, like in kind of mania when it came out. Yeah. It's it's super cool and like Romero. I really like during this class. It was awesome to have him. A Vimeo account like available because he's been like loading a bunch of his uh, projects from the Apple II and DOS, uh, at least videos of them like onto this account, as well as some um, level design stuff and a demonstration of E1M8 and even something like the the Mario Three kind of like remake that the original ID team made um, before start they started to work on Commander Keen. He has like video of that on the Vimeo account and so. Uh, Romero has been like really useful, not not in any direct way, um, but just in terms of like archiving his own work and talking about his own work. And it's clear that he really likes um, kind of like taking trips down memory lane and kind of like thinking about these these projects and historicizing them in different ways. Um, though he did run through and like all of our projects in the end, so that was kind of nice that he like showed up and and gave us some uh, kind of Twitter cred. Um, but yeah, so your first game you made or your first mod you made amber was like it was super craggy and like complex and it also had like lego textures I think. yeah yeah so i found these lego textures from uh what's the website oh realm um 667 yeah realm yeah and so i tried to incorporate those yeah i it was strange using those as well because i think the first time I actually or really tried to load my game in class, the Lego textures weren't actually showing up. Right. So it was like kind of dealing with those um, kind of difficulties was um, an experience for sure. <laughs> yeah, in Slate, if everything that you're seeing is going to be exported in your WAD file, or if it's like multiple WADs that need to be kind of loaded at the same time in terms of like textures and things. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies about how to like organize stuff and set it up so that it will play properly. Um, yeah, another thing too was like 
I, so basically the player started out in this sort of dark room and then there was like these two staircases going up to the top and then a door that went, that opened up into this much larger area, which is where kind of all the like jagged shapes and stuff were. Um, but yeah, stairs were something that were difficult too. <laughs> yeah. So it just made me like really appreciate like all of the levels that were made for Doom because yeah, just at that, in those moments when I was trying to raise individual sectors, like 20 or 40 individual sectors like and getting them all perfect and like the right angles and stuff. It, yeah, it was it was an experience. And uh, sure. doing just, I'm I'm curious. Uh, Slade, it has a uh, does it have a 3D editing mode built in? Yes. Yes. Uh, were you like were you using it, or are you doing it kind of from the 2D top down view? Um, it sort of I sort of switched back and forth. There were times where I would yeah. So like thinking about like all of the different sectors and like rooms and stuff like that, I would definitely do everything from the 2D perspective. Um, and then when I was trying to like change the height of different sectors or change the lighting, um, most of the time I would be in the 3D. You mentioned that give you a kind of a new appreciation for like the work that goes into making a lot of these levels. And something that something that, also, that people often forget is that in the 90s, we didn't, you know, no one had 3D editors or any sort of fancy <laughs> tools. And literally everything was like in a DOS window with like a, a 2D top-down thing, and you and you had to like do math in your head to align the textures, and it was and it was a, it was a nightmare. So things are things yeah. are even now things are much easier than they used yeah, to be. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm glad that we had that uh, 3D. Oh yeah, no. Uh, advanced technology is a wonderful thing, and I don't know how we were living yeah. without it. And uh, if we could jump forward a little bit, uh, Amber, I'd like to hear about your uh, final project, which uh, Kill 'em with Kindness, I believe it was called. Yeah, yeah. So um, basically, so a- after this first uh, project that we did, we were we kind of moved into adding in our own textures or creating our own textures and um, how to include those in our mods. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I decided <laughs> to hand draw my textures, uh, which um, was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it, um, so how the idea sort of started out is I really wanted to create something that was really small and kind of cutesy and you know wholesome or whatever. So I started out with this really really basic sketch of like a pond and a tree and like some flowers, and then after that I kind of went into hand drawing everything and getting them into the game. Um, (laughs) So that was kind of the first iteration of that was just like all of these hand-drawn textures and like Doom Guy walking around in like this really cutesy space, (laughs) which was really weird. Um, And then after that, um, we started getting into uh, looking at the decorate files and things like that. And that's where I really started to um, add in the different interactions and things. At this point, uh, the player could walk around and water a flower with their watering can, and the flower would start to dance. Or um, you could pet the dog, and it would like a little heart would <laughs> pop up above its head, and um, yeah, little little just small interactions and things like that. I, I like the, uh, the I like the little bit if you uh, watered one of the trees that a little bird would come out of a little yeah. hole in the tree and kind of fly away. <laughs> and there's a frog that's like poking out of the pond, but if you get close, it kind of, like, hides a little bit. Like it, it uses croaking. <laughs> yeah, so one thing Amber was, like, noticing about all this stuff is, like, in order to get Doom, in order to get these interactions to happen, like petting or or uh, or, or watering a flower or something like that, the only language in Doom is, like, damage, or, like, yeah. delivering damage. That's how, like, things communicate with one another, whether it be through melee or through long distance. And so like you had to kind of reprogram these things from the metaphor of damage to the metaphor of like something else. Yeah, there's, there's, not, there's not a lot of verbs in Doom, I guess. You're waiting for <laughs> so like when the flower's dancing, that's actually, it's like it's death. Like yeah. it dies. Yeah. And its death state is to dance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like when the dog has a little heart 
over it from petting it, that's like when it's receiving pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I love that you were able to, you know, repurpose these violent aspects into something that was much more, you know, state and cute, even if under the hood, it's still, you know, hurting and killing things. It's very yeah. interesting. I think that this was like um, a really kind of amazing response to some of our discussions throughout the class about um, violence and counterculture and, and masculinity. And probably one of the toughest weeks in the class was the one on um, Columbine and kind of thinking about some of these like original conversations happening, like in the U S government around video games and violence. We watched, you know, Joe Lieberman and John McCain talk about Mortal Kombat. We listened to like Bill Clinton talk about Doom uh, in 1999 after Columbine. Um, And we kind of talked about other things like uh, something from my background that I think about a lot when it comes to games and violence is um, I I went to Clements High School, which is um, not a well-known high school, but uh, it's the one where the um, Peter Wang made a Counter-Strike map. Uh, of the high school and got um, basically uh, suspended and put in a juvenile detention center for his senior year. Um, was that was that soon after uh, the shootings happened? So this was in this wasn't in uh, related to Columbine. This was basically after the Virginia Tech um, shooting. Oh, so it's much much more recently. Okay. Yeah, though it it reminded me in some ways about the ways in which like um, kind of media panic surrounds uh, game technologies, and and even this week, like after Florida, um, like the certain governors are like talking about uh, video games as like a, a kind of influence, and so we were kind of like thinking this through, um, and yeah, it's a really like tough discussion to have because it's really intense. Um, but also like an important one, and I think in some ways it like some of the ways that Amber's game design went, like in terms of making something that wasn't falling into uh, even like the uh, thematic kind of part of Doom, but trying to like invert that or feminize it or mm-hmm. or do something different with the same set of technologies. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, a- Amber, I wanted to I wanted to ask you specifically because uh, when you're talking about Combine and kind of the mid 90s uh video game violence uh moral panic i guess mm-hmm. was your reaction to that like did it seem like kind of quaint to you or what was your reaction to watching that sort of thing certain parts like i think there was one um clip that we watched or it was like a 10 minute video or something on the court case surrounding like violence in video games but i think they pulled up things like Street Fighter and things like that. <laughs> like, yeah, it was like Mortal Kombat and what was that like? Night uh, Trap. That was the that was the big Night one. Trap. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and things like that to me felt kind of it, it was kind of I I think the whole class was kind of you know kind of giggly about it. Is like thinking about that in comparison to like what violent games are now. It, it seemed kind of silly, but it, and then when when we were talking about things like Columbine, it got a little bit more serious. You know, it's thinking like, you know, even when we're talking about Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter and things like that, it's it's easier to think that maybe video games and violence don't really have an impact on our actions. But when you look at something so serious like Columbine, it kind of changes your perspective a little bit. Andrew, I was actually going to ask you because we played some of uh, Eric. Uh, mods in the class and I think that you wrote the like the doom world description of um of some of those and I was going to ask you like what was it like to write um to kind of like historicize the the Harris mods like within the community because it's, well, it's probably something that a lot of people ambivalent or like mixed feelings about um, I, I can I mean I can go back I can go back even further than that because okay I have no proof of this but I am like 75% sure that in like 97 around then Eric Harris emailed me once with hmm. with like a link to one of his doom levels because at the time I was making kind of a I was running kind of a pre doom world like doom news site at that point and so I, I'm pretty sure that Eric Harris like actually emailed me to like try to promote one of his maps and I didn't really think anything of it I didn't respond or anything like that because it was just some guy and then later, when after Columbine happened, I was in my senior year of high school, and I was running DoomWorld.com at that point. And I came within like a hair's breadth of being flown to Washington, D.C. to appear on a 
Morning America special that they had with a bunch of teens from around the country about Combine and video game violence and so forth. But I ended up not going on. But anyway, so to uh, get back to your question, so I guess when I was writing the kind of the historiography of it, like five years after that, um, the, I mean, because I was, I, okay, I wasn't involved, quote unquote, with the Columbine shooting in any way, but it was something that I had some degree of personal experience with, and mm-hmm. so I guess, I, and so I guess I can't divorce myself from that. And so when I was writing about it in retrospect, I'm, you know, and when I think about it in retrospect, I, I think about it kind of through the lens of the things that happened to me regarding it. So I guess I can't really answer that question because I'm too. Uh, close to it in a weird way, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we took away from the discussion in the class in ways is that, like, you know, video games are often sold as these, like, consumable objects uh, that have, like, direct impacts or have direct experiences. Maybe you, like, play through it start to end and then you move on to the sequel or something like that. But in almost every case, once you start looking closer, be it Mario Brothers or Doom or Minecraft or World of Warcraft or something, um, like it's more complex. And the relationships um, like kind of tendrilize out or spiral out. There are these kind of webs of relationships that's really hard to know like what's a cause and what's an effect. Um, and in a lot of ways, like game history, like this is kind of what I I think versus like a more of like a chronicle style or Wikipedia style of game history. I think like some kind of deeper, more interconnected exploration of the ways in which we connect to people through games or we make meaning through games is kind of needed. And uh, it's something Stephanie Bullock and I have been doing. Uh, actually kind of inspired by JP LeBreton in some ways. We've been going to Yangshuo County in China and trying to like find the Doom skybox. That's, oh, that's, I, want, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, and I almost forgot. So thank you for bringing it up. The, the reason I like segue into this is like um, Doom is like an incredible game in the States for all these reasons, and it connects to American history in these like really specific ways. But also Romero was like really savvy and is one of the first people to make distribution deals with places like uh, um, China and Hong Kong and Taiwan like in the mid-'90s. Really? I mean, I... Is that from Masters of Doom or something? Because I actually don't know about this. So there's a page on the wiki, I think, one of the Doom wikis about Doom in China. And specifically, like, it has a bunch of the box art of how Doom was released. And I think it's mentioned once in Masters of Doom. And it's something that I'm exploring a little bit more. I want to get my hands on, like, a a kind of a Taiwanese copy of Doom and a Hong Kong copy of Doom, etc. But um, one of the... Things aside from it being distributed in China, and of course, you know, in the states we have like ChexQuest and and uh, Hexen and things, which use the Doom engine to make other games. But in China, there are tons of these also. But it's kind of um, not as explored, I guess. Like what Doom variants happen overseas. And so Stephanie and I have used this as like a used the um, connection between Tom Atwood's photograph of. Yangshuo Cavern, which a snippet of it is used to make the skybox of episode one of Doom. We've kind of used that as a as a like keystone or a or a, an object study to start to explore Doom's connection to kind of history in China more generally. Um, and so yeah, we like flew out there and we thought like going to Yangshuo County, like oh we'll just you know go to the most famous cave. <laughs> And surely that will be the one that Atwood's photograph was taken from, because like, how many caves can there be? Well, it turns out there's like there be a lot of caves. So this, this is the area of China where there's uh, the Karst Mountains. They're like those really, um, well, you know them from Doom. Like the weird, the, the weird kind of lo- big lump things that are just all over yeah, the place. Yeah, they've been used to describe alien planets in like popular films. Like Chewbacca's homeworld is like the Karst Mountains in China, and. Uh, um, Avatar, like some of those shots are from the Karst Mountains in China. And so it kind of makes sense in some way that Phobos would be um, uh, this photograph from China. But you go there expecting to kind of find a site or a vantage point that is like clear, or maybe like to, it would be obvious that you go to this one town and this is definitely the mountain range that Atwood shot. But they're so massive. They're so huge. And the 90s were a long time ago, like 1991 when he probably flew there. It's like a totally different layout in terms of the towns alongside the, the um, Lijiang, the Li River there. 
And so we, we ended up like talking to a lot of people about Doom, but not finding like anything. <laughs> but by, by anything, you mean not finding any vantage point that was remotely similar or? Yeah, no, not. We found a bunch of like vantage points from caves that were similar, but not the same. Um, so we visited like four or five caves in our first trip there. And we're going to go back. We also enlisted a bunch of Danish mountain climbers because this is like a mecca for mountain climbers to like look out for it. Like here's the photo, like when you're doing your tour, it's like just keep an eye out. And <laughs> all of them had relationships to Doom, so they wanted to like try it. But in over a year, we haven't heard like any progress on, on like actually finding Atwood's photograph. And I think JP has actually contacted Atwood but it kind of goes to show, again, kind of like the earlier, that like these relationships are so much more complex. You'd think like a digital image would be easily sourced, but it turns out like the history of Doom is much richer and like much deeper and much more unknown than I think like we all know, despite like wikis or despite classes on it. Like I don't think Doom is like a finished problem. I don't think we know <laughs> they're all there is to know about this software, right? It's still growing. Right. And I think that's a good way, that's a good metaphor and a good way to kind of wind this down is that, um, prob- I mean, in all likelihood, that cave has probably been developed in some way that it wasn't 20 or 30 years ago, just because of Chinese development in general. And so, and so it kind of it, it ties into the idea that uh, digital artifacts from long ago, like even though we might think that they'll be around and be contextualized forever, they can still kind of fade away and uh, crumble and we lose the information that we once had. And so, you know, in this case, that's a, a physical location that's related to an old famous picture, but it also you know, ties into Doom and uh, Super Mario Brothers and, uh, and basically everything on the internet in general, where, you know, uh, as time goes on, unless there's kind of a concerted effort to make sure that things remain online and accessible, they kind of tend to fade away as websites you know, go offline or what have you. And, and I think that your class is, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think it's helpful in that it, it helps keep the spirit alive of looking at old things and making sure that they are preserved and that people are still understanding and experimenting with them, even if they're 25 years old. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think that's what something like Killing With Kindness shows is that like even something uh, 25 years old or something that we, you know, thought we knew a lot about, uh, it can look totally different when, yeah. like, different types of folks are, like, working on it or making things in it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really excited to see what gets made uh, by people in the class. And a- actually, Amber, I was going to ask you, do you, are you going to publish some of your other mods, like, of Doom? Yeah, I think I'll probably end up publishing um, another mod that I made in the class, actually, uh, that was basically based off of the first level of The Legend of Zelda. Um, yeah. <laughs> so a kind of um, uh, brighter <laughs> atmosphere, I guess you could say. Yeah, cranking the lighting all the way up and yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I think I'll probably end up kind of fixing that up a little bit um, and hopefully getting that out there. Yeah. Yeah, and if anybody's interested in like, a little bit class or like the other mods that were made by folks like Monica Vivar, Johnny Hopkins, and and other folks that were in the class. Maybe, uh, I don't know if this is possible, but maybe we can provide some links to like all those projects because the final kind of period at the end of the class was like, you have to publish your game on Doom World, or at least try. Uh, (laughs) Try being the operative word. No, it's, I mean, we've known forever that, um, because the whole process of like having to sign into the FTP server and upload your (laughs) your eight character name file and it's it's so ancient and literally for probably like a decade we've been putting off doing something about that and making it more (laughs) modern so yeah i'm sorry that your students had to go through that process because it's pretty it's pretty finicky I, i think it's actually like a great lesson and kind of like reinforces like all the other things about doom and about the discussion we've been having it's like oh, maybe we haven't, like, used an FTP before. Maybe, like, we have to deal with the server in a way that's different than we deal with, like, a WordPress or Facebook page or something like that. And so all these different, like, attitudes or all these, even around one piece of soccer, kind of show you just how expansive, like, media can be, I think. Um, And that we really don't, as much as we think we're experts in something, we don't know that much about video games. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so you were asking if we could embed something, but uh, if 
tell us like where people can go if they want to see more information about this class and about your work in general? Oh, yeah. Um, shoot. Well, my website is patrick-lemieux.com. And you can find, it's kind of out of date right now, but you can find links to the uh, classes and the projects I've worked on. Um, Amber, do you have a place that people could go to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess um, probably the best place to go for me would be my um, Itch.io page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> my Itch.io page. Um, and I think that's just itch.io slash ambigram, which is A-M-B-I-G-R-A-H-A-M. Mm-hmm. And that should bring you to my do mod, kill them with kindness, and also a couple other small projects and things. Okay, that's wonderful. So um, do either of you have any final thoughts or observations you'd like to make before we uh, finish this up? Well, I think so. we actually have to run. Uh, we're, we're both participating in a class called First Person, which is like a follow-up to this class, but on VR. And it starts in like one minute. So <laughs> we might have to just like run because Amber's working on some VR games now along with uh, actually like a bunch of students from the Doom class are doing this as like a follow-up where we're thinking a lot about perspectival vision and like the history of perspectival kind of image making and then making a bunch of kind of small games for the HTC Vive. Okay, that's great. Sorry. I'd like to thank the both of you, uh, Patrick Lemieux and Amber Graham, I've been speaking with. And um, I will attempt to embed those links into the uh, page for this. And I'd like to thank both of you for your time. And I hope that uh, the games and the mods you make in the future continue to be interesting and enlightening. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So thanks a lot. Have a nice day. Bye. Bye. You too.